0: People's Tribune Radio is on the air. I'm your host, Mike Thornton.
1: We get our orders from the state to focus attention just on this. Uh, and to look at it in a particular way. But anyone with an independent mind is going to refuse those orders uh, and try to understand what's going on, and there are easy ways to do it.
0: On this edition of People's Tribune Radio, our guest is Professor Noam Chomsky. That, plus our featured commentary. But first, these news stories from Nicole Trejo. Welcome
2: back, Nikki. Thanks, Mike. First, from the Progressive Review... The World Bank is proposing to send 37,000 Chinese and 25,000 non-Tibetan Muslims into Tibet in violation of its own guidelines that funded projects could not hurt ethnic minorities. The plan will come up before the bank's board in Washington on June 8. Tibetans argue that the resettlement would be used to squash their influence in the region. From The Guardian, millions of North Koreans have been reduced to eating seaweed, cabbage stalks, and grass. With no prospect of real food for the next month, when some new-season crops will start yielding food, hundreds of thousands of desperate refugees have been flowing across the border into China. Pyongyang has simply run out of food, says the UN World Food Program. From Anti Ratainen, June 18, 1999, will be an international day of action aimed at the heart of the global economy, the financial centers, banking districts, and multinational corporation power bases groups in 30 countries are preparing events for June 18th. Individual groups include Diverse Women for Diversity from the USA, North Sumatra Peasants Union, Bangladesh Garment Workers Federation, Policy and Information Center for International Solidarity out of Seoul, South Korea, and Chikoto, an umbrella movement linking different indigenous peoples fighting oil exportation in Nigeria. Protests are planned in many of the world's financial centers, such as London, New York, Sydney, and Seoul. From People Against Racist Terror, in Oklahoma, law enforcement officers will have greater freedom to conduct no-knock searches in the future with the signing of Senate Bill 580 by Governor Frank Keating. Current law permits no-knock search only if the officer has probable cause to believe that a warning would pose a significant danger to human life. Under the new law, a judge could authorize an officer to break open a door or window of a house without warning if the officer has reasonable cause to believe that the warning would pose a significant danger to human life, allow the possible destruction of evidence, give rise to the possibility of resistance or escape, inhibit the effective investigation of a crime, or be a futile or useless gesture. The expanded no-knock search law goes into effect November 1st. And finally, from Focus on the Corporation... Under the U.S. Occupational Safety and Health Act, violations of health and safety rules that pose a substantial probability of death or serious physical harm to workers are considered serious violations. This is roughly the standard needed to convict a criminal for manslaughter in some states. The average penalty for a serious violation is $709 according to Death on the Job Toll of Neglect, a report by the AFL-CIO. For People's Tribune Radio, I'm Nicole Trejo.
0: People's Tribune Radio is produced by the League of Revolutionaries for a New America, who also published the newspaper, People's Tribune, Tribuno del Pueblo. Stay tuned for contact and ordering information at the end of the program. Professor Chomsky was interviewed by Eric Siljak, the host of Global Kitchen on KVMR-FM Radio. Professor of Linguistics at MIT, Noam Chomsky,
3: is a world-renowned scholar and political analyst. He has written and lectured extensively on philosophy, international affairs, U.S. foreign policy, and the mass media, and was the subject of the award-winning film Manufacturing Consent. Any attempt to look behind the headlines into complex history of the region economics or geopolitics is almost impossible because any departure from exclusive focus on genocide makes one almost a supporter of genocide so in order for us not to lose half of our audience we just have no choice but to start with you know atrocities ethnic cleansing emotionally charged arguments so let me start by asking you about this uh, basic argument that we hear, that U.S. military intervention is necessary to stop genocide in Kosovo, just like 50 years ago we went to war to stop Hitler.
1: Well, first of all, we didn't go to war to stop Hitler, so let's put that aside. Uh, the U.S. went to war with Hitler when Hitler attacked the, when Hitler declared war on the United States. Uh, through the late 1930s, the United States was rather supportive of Hitler and uh, very enthusiastic about Mussolini. As for uh, uh Intervention to stop uh, actions to stop the uh, ethnic cleansing and uh, humanitarian catastrophes and so on. Yeah, I think that's really important. And if anyone in the United States, or, uh, the U.S. or British the governments or the European governments were interested in doing that, they could do it very easily in far more serious cases than this, uh, current cases. So, for example, you're, you're absolutely right that we're kind of we get our orders from the state to focus attention just on this. Uh, and to look at it in a particular way. But anyone with an independent mind is going to refuse those orders, uh, and try to understand what's going on. And there are easy ways to do it. Uh, so for example, look not very far away at, say, Turkey, right next door. Uh, in Turkey in the mid-1990s under the Clinton administration, uh, there were, there were, the military was carrying out, uh, ethnic cleansing, uh, destruction of villages, uh, massacres, uh, torture, terror. On a scale way beyond anything that was claimed in Kosovo, this is in the Kurdish areas. There were perhaps uh, several thousand villages destroyed, uh, roughly two or three million refugees, uh, uh, maybe tens of thousands of people killed. Right in the mid 90s, uh, as the atrocity it was done with U.S. overwhelmingly about 80 uh, percent. As the atrocities increased, Clinton increased the arms flow to make sure that they went on. Uh, the uh, in fact, when human rights groups like Human Rights Watch uh, uh, discovered that uh, U.S. jets uh, were being used illegally in violation of congressional restrictions to attack civilian targets, uh, the Clinton administration found various ways around them and kept sending them. You know, to act to prevent those atrocities, would be quite simple. All we have to do is stop participating in them.
3: But then you know, it brings us to the question: Which massacres are fit for U.S. moral well, crusades? Let's take a look
1: at massacres. Okay. But the terms like massacre and genocide and so on are used very freely when people want to use them. So let's take a look at what the United States uh, and NATO claim to be the case. And I'll assume that everything they say is true. So let's take U.S.-NATO uh, assertions of Kosovo. What they say is up to February 1999, up to March 1999 until the bombing started, uh, there were about 2,000 people killed on all sides uh, in Kosovo, most of them. Uh, Albanian, uh, probably the large majority of the 2,000. Uh, the, there were a couple hundred thousand refugees. Uh, this was, according to the United States, uh, largely, uh, this was, the, uh, violence began with, uh, attacks on, uh, police, Yugoslavian police, uh, in Kosovo, which is a province of Yugoslavia, uh, by the KLA, the Kosovo Liberation Army, uh, attacks from Across the border and based in, and supported abroad, uh, the Serbian army reacted and reacted very poorly to that. Uh, pretty much in the way we're with, in, say uh, Lebanon, where Israel reacts to attacks on its soldiers that uh, with uh, um, but, you know, retaliation against civilians that led to further retaliation by uh, KLA against Serbian civilians, and a cycle of violence built up through early this. year. Well, you know the humanitarian crisis all right, right, but unfortunately one that's duplicated uh, in many, many parts of the world. For example, it's almost identical to what the State Department describes as being the case in Colombia. Uh, pro- approximately the same number of people killed uh, another 300,000 refugees last year, according to the State Department, added to well over a million. Um, the overwhelming majority of cities attributed to the uh, army and its paramilitary associates who are funded by the United States with increasing flow of arms. And we can continue around the world. Uh, so uh, that's what's now called genocide in the very specific case of Kosovo. Now, what happened on March 23rd, 24th? Well, the United States presented uh, the Yugoslav government with an ultimatum, Rambouillet Agreement. Uh, although it wasn't reported here, as far as I can discover, uh, the National Assembly made a count- it rejected it, but made a counterproposal. Uh, the counterproposal was kind of vague. We don't know exactly what it meant. Uh, The State Department representative, James Rubin, was asked at a press conference on March 24th about this uh, Serbian assembly counteroffer, and he said, we know silver lining in it, so we decided to bomb. Okay, That's the end of the diplomacy. First of all, they very strongly condemned the withdrawal of the uh, monitors, the international advisors. Why did they they leave in the first place? They were told to leave by the U.S. The The Serbian government strongly opposed that, and in the same resolution that you're talking about, they once again condemn it. They wanted the monitors back, and yes, they have a resolution saying what it says is uh, roughly: uh, after uh, autonomy is negotiated among the various ethnic communities, uh, we will consider the question of international presence to uh, guarantee, uh, you know, the safety and so on of everyone. Well, okay, you know, maybe it's a good offer, maybe it's not a good offer, but there's certainly room for diplomacy. Uh, the U.S. simply refused.
3: Wouldn't international community be interested actually in having as much as possible international presence this monitors? And well, first
1: of all, there's international communi- the term international community is a term of propaganda, U.S. propaganda. There is no involvement of the international community here. Zero. The United States not a lot. The international community is the United Nations. The international community is not NATO. The uh, NATO powers, uh, with varying degrees of commitment. Uh, are following the U.S. lead on this, but they do not constitute the international community, though that term is used here to refer to the United States and its allies. I mean, India is part of the international community, China is part of it, South Africa is part of it, Latin America is part of it. They're mostly opposed. Seems
3: like liberal people uh, have replaced analysis of these geopolitical economic factors with moral outrage, and I want to ask you about that because this seems to be totally new situation, and That's I have- not know.
1: Liberals means, you know, educated people, essentially. Educated people. They tend to support, uh, state atrocities, overwhelmingly. I mean, they supported the U.S. War Vietnam, for example. How many, how many, uh, um, um, f- faculty members did you see? Or editors and so on. In fact, the liberal, this was, Vietnam was a liberals war. Started, it was a, the aggression, the attack against South Vietnam, which is what it was, was launched by John F. Kennedy. Uh, he's the one who sent, the uh, U.S. Air Force planes to bomb South Vietnamese civilians, uh, authorized the use of napalm, initiated crop destruction, started driving millions of people into concentration camps. It was supported by the uh, liberal community, educated community, right through until the time when business turned against it, corporate America turned against it on pragmatic grounds. Uh, it was becoming too costly. In fact, if you want to see what the attitude of liberals was, just have a look at yesterday's uh, lead editorial in the New York, which was... A- capture it quite accurately. They say that we shouldn't be hobbled by the Vietnam analogy in uh, bombing Kosovo and maybe invading it. And their reasons are that in the case of Vietnam, the sacrifices of the United States were too high uh, and the gains were uncertain. Well, you know, there were people on the German general staff said the same thing about Hitler after Stalingrad. That's not opposition to the war. If the issue here is humanitarian very simple ways to uh, stop much worse humanitarian crises, in fact, right in that region. And and notice that the U.S. bombing, the NATO U.S.-NATO bombing, radically escalated the atrocities, exactly as it was expected. I mean, when you bomb people, they react. And the way they reacted is exactly as any rational person expected, namely where they're strong, not where you're strong, which happens to be on the ground. So up until the bombing, the level of there, there were certainly atrocities, but they were at the level that you find all over the world. For example, the kind that the U.S. supports in Colombia, uh, way below what the U.S. supports in Turkey. After the bombing, uh, it's beginning to be comparable to other cases. So, for example, there was a the Israeli press has a the major journal there, Haaretz, which is kind of like the New York Times. Uh, they had an article by one of their major correspondents pointing pointing out, in effect, that the uh, Kosovo is becoming uh, like Palestine, uh, Israel and Palestine in 1947-48, except with TV cameras.
3: How can we explain this enthusiastic support for this bombing of the former opponents of other American interventions?
1: Because Uh, in this case, U.S. propaganda has succeeded in presenting it uh, as a humanitarian endeavor. And a lot of people who are in favor of humanitarian endeavors are just caught up in the propaganda. We know that the U.S. government does not care about humanitarian catastrophes, nor do the people who are getting excited about this. You can see that very, I mean, for example, by looking right next door in Turkey, where they have been supporting, massively supporting, even worse atrocities. And it takes nothing to stop that support. You You don't have to bomb Ankara to stop the support. Just stop sending the jet planes... Uh, napalm, uh, any personnel weapons and so on. That's all it takes. If there was a moral demand for justice, why wouldn't there be a moral demand that the United States stop contributing to much worse atrocities in Turkey?
3: Don't people, uh, many Americans when we see these interviews or, or even on the street they, they stop them and ask them. Oh, Everybody is sure. very angry. Is, we
1: have to make a distinction between the majority of the American population and the elite educated sectors that are involved in planning and management. They're completely different. So let, let's take a look back. I and mean, we have a ton of evidence on this. I mean, take the Vietnam War again. I, I mentioned the you know the the way it's analyzed by the New York Times, which is typical of uh, educated sectors. The war was wrong because it became too costly for us. Uh, that's the general view. Uh, you take a look at the American population; their view has been completely different, radically different. I um, mean, these this it's been asked on polls regularly since the late 1960s. The most recent one was just a few months ago. Uh, people are, are asked what they think about the war in Vietnam, uh, and uh, the, it's an open question. you don't expect high numbers, but roughly 70 percent uh, since around 19, late '60s, about 70 percent have said I'm quoting, "The war was fundamentally wrong and immoral, not a mistake. Among educated people, that's never almost never that's statistically insignificant. You know maybe one percent. Uh, the standard view is it was a mistake. Uh, well, that's a sh- dramatic difference between the general population uh, and uh, uh, educated sectors, and that is found on a lot of issues. As far as look, as far as the population is concerned, you're quite right about moral outrage. But remember that people have no way to feel moral outrage about uh, Turkey, which is far more important because here we're directly contributing to it massively to the atrocities. Of but people can't feel moral outrage about that because they've never heard of it. If you look back at coverage of Indochina on the part of what are called the liberal media, you know, the New York Times, the Washington Post, and so on, uh, their criticism was it wasn't working. But that's, like, as I said, that's like the criticism of... Uh, made by the German general staff after Stalingrad.
3: But what I hear there, you know, okay, maybe bombing is not the best method, but some other means will be more effective, but the goal is not in any question, you know. The That's answer, right, because that is the
1: nature of uh, being well-educated. It is to accept the framework of power and not to question it.
3: How can then this non-negotiable assumption of, you know, good goals and intentions of U.S. government be explained?
1: How can it be explained? Yeah. Just the manner I've just described. Uh, well-educated people understand that, you, that that is the position you must assume. So, for example, again, let's just take yesterday's New York Times. Uh, they have a major article by one of their intellectuals, House intellectuals, Judith Miller, uh, on uh, sovereignty and human rights, who asserts as a fact that the United States has been an aggressive leader in the struggle for human rights. Why not anyone who even pays attention to the most elementary data knows that that's not true. Uh, and uh, uh, just look at Amnesty International reports. So I think George Orwell. I mean, everybody's heard of Orwell. Right. In fact, everyone has read Animal Farm, just about. But ask your listeners how many people have read the introduction to Animal Farm. Well, the answer will be, I can tell you right now, very few, if any. And there's a reason for that. It wasn't published. Uh, why wasn't it published? Well, because here's what's said. Uh, Animal Farm was, of course, a satire about the totalitarian enemy, the Soviet Union. Big Brother. (laughs) Yeah, and so, of course, that was wonderful. Everybody had to praise that. But in the introduction, Orwell said, look, uh, he's writing in England. He said, we shouldn't feel so self-righteous about it because England is not all that different. Uh, And his uh, introduction was called Literary Censorship in England, Censorship. And he described how in free England, uh, unpopular ideas are... Um, suppressed and marginalized and never heard, not by the same means they use in Russia, but he said the result comes out not very different. And then he even gave some reasons. And one of the reasons was pretty much what I've just been repeating. Mm -hmm. He said that uh, well-educated people come to understand that there are certain things it simply wouldn't do to say or even to think. And that's part of the process of education. So, yes, you end up with the result that uh, we've been talking about. For a properly educated person, the idea that the United States might not have uh, honorable motivations is just unthinkable. I mean, you can have that idea about every other country in in past history or the present world. In fact, you do have it, but not about the holy state that we just uh, support with uh, uh, dedication of a kind that uh, commissars would be impressed with. Uh, So why are we there? Well, here I have to speculate. So far it's been fact. Uh, but my speculation is roughly this. Uh, turbulence in the Balkans, no matter of what kind it is, is a threat to the interests of rich and powerful people. It, it, it poses a kind of a danger to Europe and hence to the United States, uh, which is heavily involved in European economy and investment and so on. Uh, so uh, that means any kind of turbulence in the Balkans becomes what is called a humanitarian crisis term. It means it might threaten the interests of rich and powerful people. Uh, In contrast, uh, if people slaughter each other in Sierra Leone or uh, southeastern Turkey or uh, Colombia or whatever, it's not a humanitarian crisis because it doesn't threaten the interests of rich and powerful people. In fact, we're very often involved in it. The U.S. has has been and continues to be quite willing to support dictators as long as they follow orders. Take Milosevic. I mean, at 1995 at Dayton, the Dayton Agreement, was an agreement with Milosevic, which sold out the Kosovar Albanians. That's one of the reasons that their non-very powerful and impressive, non-violent movement in Kosovo uh, turned to violence. Uh, they recognized that the United States understands nothing of violence. We preferred Milosevic to uh, the Rugova Rigo- and the Albanian movement gave them nothing.
3: Uh, how about KLA, which we are now uh, actually, that's the only Albanian movement that we do support. Well, no, that's the- not
1: so clear. You know, up until very recently, the last few days, in fact, uh, the U.S. was condemning the KLA uh, as a very dangerous force, something like the Taliban, uh, made up of uh, Islamic fundamentalists, uh, um, you know, Albanian Stalinists, uh, drug runners, and so on. There were major stories about that from U.S. government sources. I remember that they keep changing their story, but their picture of the K- the picture they were giving the press on the country of the KLA. Up until a very few days ago, is that an extremely dangerous uh, Stalinist uh, Islamic uh, narco-trafficking type organization?
3: So, how can they overnight then become a? Uh, they
1: can't become anything. I mean, maybe that was false then, and maybe it's false now. But you know, both stories can't be true. The goal is to uh, uh, place uh, to ensure that uh, NATO, meaning the United States, dominates the region. And a specific proposal was made, which would involve uh, NATO ground forces inside Yugoslavia. And yeah, that's probably their goal. Uh, they know they're not going to achieve that goal now by bombing. And they therefore are turning towards the question of ground forces. And the obvious thing is, okay, let's uh, arm this group that we called a, uh, a terrorist army just recently. After all, the United States has often done that. It did in Nicaragua. It armed a murderous, brutal terrorist army and sent it into attack. So it targets in Nicaragua. Was the U.S. opposed when Croatia... Uh, out a couple hundred thousand Serbs from Kraina. No, oh, it's done with U.S. arms and U.S. support. There isn't much you know, disagreement about where power lies. There are seven rich countries, G7 they're called. Those are overwhelmingly dominated internally, just as the, including the United States, by uh, corporate and financial sector. Uh, so there's a highly concentrated uh, corporate sector, by now almost a lot of it multinational uh international financial sectors a small grouping of them with tight connections internationally and they form the uh, private power sector which is closely integrated with governments the rich governments relies on them uh, and uh, largely dominates them you know it's not like a, it's not like the communist party with a leadership but uh, it's a pretty closely interconnected array of uh, highly concentrated power centers first thing to do is not believe propaganda, whether it comes from Milosevic or Clinton or Russia or anywhere else.
3: Well, Professor Chomsky, thank you so very much for being with us.
0: This is People's Tribune Radio. And now our featured commentary from Laura Garcia of the People's Tribune, Tribuno del Pueblo.
4: A warning from Colorado. On April 20, Adolf Hitler's birthday, at least two students went on a search-and-kill mission through Columbine High School in Littleton, Colorado. They massacred 12 of their classmates and a teacher before ending their own lives. Denver's chief of police sadly commented, We live in a sick society. Yes, something is wrong in America, but what is it and how are we going to save our children from future massacres? People the world over are asking why. The usual suspects have been churned up. Parents, school officials, access to guns, and the youth themselves. No one out of the mass of specialists, psychiatrists, public officials, and police officials has given an answer that didn't blame someone for this massacre. The youth are becoming more and more disfranchised and alienated from society. For years they have been sending a cry for help suicides, drive-by shootings, violent acts, etc. These cries have fallen on deaf ears. What's happening to our youth is a reflection of the destruction of society going on all around us. Good-paying, blue-collar jobs have disappeared and been replaced with low-paying jobs, temporary jobs, or seasonal work. The institutions that provided some kind of stability during hard times, including welfare programs, public housing, financial aid programs to pursue higher education are being obliterated. Layoffs, downsizing, and dog-eat-dog competition have been the hallmarks of 1990s America, along with fabulous wealth for a few and a spreading poverty for the many that is reaching even middle-class America. Is it any wonder many youths feel isolated and hopeless? Our youth see what the future holds for them. They know that a society based on a market economy holds them valueless. What other conclusion can they draw when in America, one out of four children go to bed hungry? When children are the fastest growing sector of the homeless population? When 11 children under the age of 20 are murdered each day? The value of life is being cheapened. Our youth see that when someone loses their job, They're evicted from their homes because this society refuses to guarantee anyone the necessities of life. Our youth see that the unemployed are destined for homelessness, eating from garbage cans, and dying in the streets of America. The slaughter at Columbine High School, one of a number of such incidents in recent years, is another warning that something has to be done. The ruling class has no solution. President Clinton's words ring hollow when he says, we must teach our children to settle their differences through words, not weapons, while he continues the daily slaughter of human beings in Yugoslavia. We share the sorrow as Littleton mourns its children, but we must turn our grief into a commitment to change the world. If we don't offer our youth a new ideology and morality, Many of them will turn to the fascist ideology that motivated the young men who killed their classmates in Colorado. The people must build a real democratic movement to eradicate all that is wrong in America. We need to fight for another set of values, not the free market values that say you're only worth what you can produce, but values that engender a society based on community and cooperation where every child is everyone's responsibility to take care of, to nurture, and guide.
0: That's it for this month's edition of the program. People's Tribune Radio is produced by the League of Revolutionaries for a New America. If you'd like more information about the League or its newspaper, People's Tribune, tribuno del pueblo you can contact us at 1-800-691-6888 that's 1-800-691-6888 our music's by rockamoli on behalf of the league of revolutionaries for a new america nicole trejo and eric Siljak, we'd like to thank you for tuning into the program my name is mike thornton We invite you to join us next time for another edition of People's Tribune Radio.